In 2020, company bosses have become more aware than ever of the physical and mental health of their employees, and there are no quick solutions. Businesses must take a holistic approach with wellness options that make everyone feel valued. Flexible workspace provider Fora believes it has some of the answers. Find out more at wired.uk forward slash Fora Wellness. Coming up today, it's the final podcast of 2020, so we're having a party. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. So you, can, you can tell we're having a party because everyone sounds like they're having lots of fun. This was the week when Disney announced it was going to do a Disney and milk these Star Wars and Marvel franchises for all they're worth in order to lure more people onto Disney+. The company plans to launch 10 new TV series based on the franchises over the next few years. Disney+, Plus, which launched just over a year ago, already has 86.8 million subscribers. This was also the week when SpaceX's Starship SN8 exploded in dramatic fashion on its landing after a test launch that saw it complete several high-altitude manoeuvres. The rocket is a prototype design ultimately intended to take people and cargo to the moon and beyond. And it was also the week when the first people in the world received the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine as part of the first mass vaccination programmes, at least using that vaccine. First up was a woman in the UK called Margaret Keenan. She was aged 91, followed by a 81-year-old man called, would you believe it, William Shakespeare. And finally, this was the week when the US government launched two antitrust lawsuits against Facebook, accusing the company of wielding its monopoly power to crush and overwhelm its rivals. Federal regulators argue that Facebook should unwind its acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram. Facebook disagrees. Is everyone in the party mood? Just just to check, we're all we're all ready for a party, right? Woohoo! Woo Pumped. yeah. Got my <laughs> I've got a a banana here and a glass of water. <laughs> Matt Burgess, are you Party. are you pumped? Do you have your banana and water? Uh, I've already consumed them, so I'm sort of like uh, peak party already. I've already I've already hit that moment of uh, joy. Wonderful you party Let- animal, Matt Burgess. <laughs> Let's kick on with your moment of joy with your party tastic podcast fact. Okay, so this week I learned about uh, the tent caterpillar, which is obviously a species of caterpillar, uh, and it leaves a silk trail wherever it goes and does so to build nests. Um, the nests, um, if you basically Google image search this, they look they look a bit like tents, uh, hence the name, but they are just sort of like round twigs and, and sort of in trees and just quite creepy really in, in the way that they look a little bit like um spiders webs at the same time um and but there's loads of sort of caterpillars in them uh it, it's yeah slightly unnerving i think thank you for that matt reynolds so i found out that by weight on earth there is as much stuff made by humans as there is living 
organisms. So the combined weight of all the things that humans have made, so bridges, shopping centres, boats and coffee cups and probably other stuff as well, that comes to 1.1 trillion tonnes and that's equal to the combined dry weight of all the living beings, you know, that includes trees and, and bacteria, all the living beings on the planet, which is a pretty stunning statistic when you consider that In 1900, artificial objects were just 3% of the weight of living beings. But now we've reached that tipping point where there's more stuff than there are um, living organisms. But it's the same amount of stuff, right? So the Earth doesn't suddenly weigh more. Well, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's unless the things we've made come from asteroids. I mean, that's true. So, so it's more artificial stuff because, I mean, after we're not, we're not including Mount Everest as one of these things. But if you take down a bit of a mountain and mix it with something and turn it into concrete, that does become human-made stuff. So you're right. I mean, I'm sure if we included all, all, all the other stuff, there's, there's, a, there's a ton more other stuff. But um, you know, in terms of artificial stuff humans have added to the planet, that now weighs more than any uh, collective living, or, living organisms. Thank you for saying stuff, lots and lots. Vicky Turk, what did you learn this week? Um, I've got a fact charitably donated by Natasha Vernal, our beloved colleague, uh, about spiders in space. Uh, nothing to do with David Berry. So on Earth, spiders build asymmetrical webs with the centre displaced towards the upper edge. When resting, spiders sit with their head downwards because they can move towards freshly caught prey faster in the direction of gravity. If you've ever seen a spider catch a fly in its web, you'll have probably seen this and it's quite gnarly. But on the International Space Station, spiders can't use gravity to orient their webs, so they use light instead. Researchers found that when the lights were on, spiders could replicate their webs on Earth by using it as a guide and so they face away from the light. Um, you made it sound a bit like something awful had happened to uh, to Natasha. Uh, it hasn't. Um, <laughs> she was meant to come on the podcast until about five minutes ago when she realised she had an interview. She just to hates leave. parties. She just really, really hates parties. And this definitely is a party. Um, the final story this week has been replaced by a quiz. Um, so if you want to get in the party spirit and skip over the stories, go about half an hour in for all the fun stuff. In the meantime, we've got some serious work to do. Matt Reynolds, The Moon. Yeah, so so I'd like to kick off with uh, you know taking us back to the heydays of the the Apollo space mi- space missions in the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies. So obviously really famous for for people walking on the moon and uh, you know doing all that kind of exciting uh, moon stuff, planting flags and all the stuff they're really famous for. But also what the Apollo astronauts brought back was a lot of moon rock. In fact, these six crewed Apollo missions brought back three hundred and eighty two kilograms of moon rock. So much uh, lunar material, the scientists are still opening new packets of space rock and analysing it for the first time all of these decades later. In fact, some of the samples have just never been opened. So there are pristine lunar samples that you know, came back from the Apollo missions that just are sitting in museums and collections that no one has actually opened and looked at. Now, a few years after the Apollo missions, in 1976, the Soviet Union's Luna 24 robotic Voyager brought back rather measly 170 grams to Earth. And since then, nothing. There's not been any moon matter brought back to Earth by spacecraft. Not a single thing until now. So your other facts about the weight of stuff... Well, Earth has got heavier if we keep bringing back stuff from the moon. And if we're about to bring back loads more, then we're in real trouble, aren't we? So what's happening now? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I, I wonder if they took that 382 kilograms into uh, account. Obviously, the moon is originally created from part of Earth, so is it just a bit of Earth coming back to Earth, really? That's probably you know, a, a, a massive headache, so let's not, let's not get into that. Um, so on December, the, the, the new bit that's going on here, so on December the 5th, China's Chang'e 5 lander took off from the lunar surface and it carried in it about two kilos of moon rocks. They're the first samples for uh, decades and decades. And what's happening is that sample is now making its way back to Earth. If everything goes to plan, by mid-December, the shielded container that's in the middle of that spacecraft should land in Inner Mongolia and we'll have our hands on the first pristine lunar samples uh, for 44 years. So this is the fifth mission in China's lunar exploration program, and that we also see it put a lander and a rover on the moon. And you might remember last year, um, there was humanity's first soft landing on the far side of the moon. It was, it was really, really interesting because the far side of the moon is really, really hard to contact in terms of radio signals. So they had to set up a kind of, um, uh, like a kind of a moon satellite, really, that was like a relay to you know, get messages from that, from that lander. So it's really, really, really exciting. It's all part of the country's wider plan for lunar exploration that might potentially lead to crude missions uh, or even a lunar outpost later on. But the exciting bit about this one is all of that new space rock. If we've already got 382 kilograms of space rock and some of that is sitting in unopened packets because we haven't even got around to looking at it yet, why do we need two more fresh kilos? Yeah, this is a bit, it's a bit like a Christmas present thing when, you know, your mum's like, you don't need more clothes. You've not even worn the last thing I brought you. It's like, you don't need more moon rock. We've got, got loads of moon rock. Um, what makes this different and, and why this is quite exciting is so that these samples are from an unusual bit of the moon that's called the Oceanus Procellarum. I mean, my Latin's not great. I think that's right. But, but it's, it's generally known as the Sea of Storms. And it's essentially a huge frozen sea of ancient lava. And it's really quite unique and interesting on the moon. So there are actually, there are lots of these frozen lava seas dotted about the moon. So we've got, you know, the Sea of Tranquility, which famously was the site of the first Apollo landing. Many of these are hundreds of miles across, but the ocean of storms is huge. It's this really complicated flood of, you know, frozen lava, essentially, that's, you know, it's two and a half kilometres long. And at one time, it was this really volcanically active ocean, really, where it splashed fire and, and brimstone, and it was really quite a terrifying place to be. And the thing is, even though these oceans and these frozen lava seas are one of the moon's most distinguishing features, when you look up at the moon, they're those darker patches that you see, scientists just aren't really sure how they were made. So if we don't know much about them at the second, um, we're obviously sort of like getting to a stage where we might learn more. But what, are the, what, is the, what do we actually know at this stage already, basically? So we know that these lava seas, they tend to sit in giant bowls, which are essentially the scars that are left behind by really, really huge impacts. So one theory is that when we had these impacts, you know, obviously the moon had no atmosphere, unlike Earth, it, it, you know, the reason it's kind of pockmarked by all these, um, you know, craters and, and scars is because, you know, if something's coming in, usually it kind of hits it fully formed and causes all this damage. Um, so one idea is that these impacts force the crust open so forth, uh, forcefully that magma below basically oozed out into these huge craters. Um, and this is because obviously in Earth, you know, you've got the mantle, which is this, um, you know, bit underneath the crust that is, you know, liquid and it's magma and it's kind of 
uh, you know, it's what you know, kind of comes out of volcanoes, really. Um, there's this idea that actually that probably was coming out of the surface after these impacts. So the idea is if you remove a lot of crust, suddenly you've got loads and loads of magma, so it can melt through and, you know, it can release heat, and it's responsible for melting lots and lots of bowls, which then, uh, melting lots and lots of rocks, sorry, that then simply get poured into these convenient impact bowls. So you have these kind of self-contained seas of lava. But there's something kind of weird going on here, because... Based on Apollo-era samples, there seems to be a gap of several hundred millions of years between the impacts making a chasm in the surface of the moon and the lava gushing out. And so our, our writer that wrote this, um, Robin Andrews, he used this comparison saying, it's like poking a, you know, a, you know, filling a balloon full of water and then poking it, and then it being years and years, maybe you know, the whole rest of your life before um, water leaked out. If something's making a hole in the moon, why does it take so long for this lava to get out? Why does this lava seem to be so relatively recent? So the Apollo-era samples weren't able to teach us that. So are the samples being collected by China's mission going to reveal something different? That's the hope. So... You know, the hope is what this will reveal is something about you know the moon's most recent volcanic activity. Because I think we really think of the moon as quite an uninteresting, um, or maybe not uninteresting, but certainly in terms of volcanic activity, there's no, um, you know, we don't see any volcanoes erupting, there's no atmosphere, there doesn't seem to be any exciting vents or something. We see it as quite inactive, but obviously that's not always been the case. And what's interesting about the ocean of storms is that some of the frozen rock there, um, some of the frozen lava, sorry, is estimated to be around 1.2 billion years old. And that's really quite weird because that doesn't really match up with what we know about the physics of the moon. So you need trapped heat to make magma, right? And the moon has two internal heat sources. It has radioactive decay and the leftover heat from its fiery formation. But the moon is also really, really, really small. So to the best of our knowledge and to the best of our modelling, the heat that's produced by either of those two mechanisms should have escaped into space not long after the moon was born, 4.5 million years ago. So it seems really odd that we've got these, um, this frozen lava that's still being erupted 1.2 billion years ago, or, as some other people suggest, there might even be lava that's as recent as 100 million years ago. So, essentially, this, there's this question. It's when did the moon stop being volcanically active... You know, when did that heat under the surf surface go away? And we can't even answer this most basic question about the moon is, is that, is it vol you know, volcanically dead or is it still active? And if it's still active, that can make the moon suddenly a much more interesting place and there's, there could be much more going on than we really thought. At the top of this section, Matt, you alluded to this, um, this fact that, you know, the moon's history is very much uh, tied up in the history of the Earth. So could this also tell us something about our own planet? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one of the hopes of this mission. So just a little bit on the, the origin of the moon. So the, we think the moon came about from a Mars-sized planet basically colliding with the very young Earth about 4.5 billion years ago. And essentially what happened is that that flung loads and loads of material out into, into space. And some of that material coalesced um, and became the moon. 
But what happened during that massive, really, really violent, violent impact is that both of those wells lost loads of their water. You know, it, it continued boiling off in space. It was kind of flung off the, the planet. And yet what's weird is the ocean does have, sorry, the Earth does have oceans and rain. But the moon obviously has no atmosphere. It doesn't have any liquid water at its surface. But we do know from studies of volcanic glass beads that the moon under the surface is still soggy, right? There's still water. So... What these um, samples might help us understand is where did the moon's hydration come from? Was it from um, water that hung around after this um, collision? Or might it be that asteroids brought water to the moon afterwards and that's why it's slightly, um, you know, that's why there's this kind of sogginess? So there's this question of understanding how the Earth managed to hang on to so much water versus the moon and, you know, where did all this extra water come from? So the hope is if we can look at these samples, you might be able to start answering some of those questions too. It's a really, really interesting story. Uh, podcast.wire.co.uk if you've got any thoughts on that, and we'll include a link to the full story in the show notes. As ever on the Wire podcast, a, a sudden and abrupt turn from the moon into a British supermarket chain, Matt Burgess. Yeah, uh, this is not uh, maybe in keeping with the party spirit, but we'll probably get there (laughs) afterwards. Um, So this week we reported uh, on the fact that one of Britain's largest supermarket groups has been using uh, facial recognition technology in its stores to scan shoppers. So over the last 18 months, branches of the Southern Co-op, which is um, separate from the sort of full co-op group, which is the most well-known sort of a set of these branches uh, have been using the techno- technology in 18 of their stores across the south of England. Um, and as a result of the sort of trials that have been going on, other regional uh, co-op franchises are now believed to be looking at uh, trialling facial recognition systems. Um, and why we're talking about this uh, now, I guess, is because uh, it's one of the sort of like biggest first use cases we've seen of uh, facial recognition technology in the UK in the private sector. Uh, so most of what we've heard about facial recognition previously, and we've talked about it on the podcast a lot over uh, recent years, uh, has been about public sector use, so police or government-led use of facial recognition technology. But this is uh, private sector run by organisations which are not uh, doing law enforcement activities. Um, I'll give you a little rundown of how it works briefly. So... Um, when people enter the shop um, or the shops that are using this, uh, they are their faces are scanned uh, and captured by CCTV cameras uh, from a third-party technology company called Facewatch, which sells tech uh, and its systems and its software uh, to co-op and other retailers. Um, so every time somebody enters one of the 18 shops, the camera captures an image of their faces. The image uh, from a CCTV camera is then converted into uh, basically numerical data, uh, which is compared against a sort of watch list of uh, suspects that people have been flagged uh, who could be wanted to be identified by this system. If a match is made between uh, the data from somebody's face and stuff that's already in the database, then staff within the store receive notifications on smartphones, on devices there, um, and then they can go and sort of talk to or watch or monitor uh, the, the person that they have 
has been flagged to them. Um, and the idea behind this is to really to reduce uh, theft and crime within stores. Uh, so co-op this year says that there's been uh, an 80% increase in violence uh, against their staff. And this most often happens when they're trying to apprehend uh, people who are uh, shoplifting or stealing goods from the store. Um, and one important point is that while everybody who goes into the store is having their images captured, um, only the images uh, and data that is related to uh, people who are on the watch lists are stored. It's stored for two years, but if you're just entering the store, uh, the image and the data related to your face will not be kept um, just by, by default, basically. So should we be worried about this development? You know, how was it brought in? Do we feel that this is a, an appropriate use of it or are there other warning signs about how co-op has implemented this technology? Yeah, so since we published the story, there's been quite a bit of sort of debate and, and uh, discussion around this generally. And there's a couple of uh, things that have really sort of come to the to the to the fore on this. Um, so there have been questions around sort of a lack of transparency and privacy campaigners have questioned whether uh, the use of the technology in this way is uh, or can be legally justified. So on the on the transparency point, um, while all the shops uh, that are using facial recognition cameras by the Southern Co-op Group uh, have got signs outside them saying uh, that they are using the technology. There wasn't sort of a general uh, announcement that was made to the public or sort of any debate or discussion around this before the trial started. And as I said earlier, this this has been going on for sort of more than a year, up to about 18 months. Um, and the, this has really only come to light in sort of how it's being used across uh, a dozen and a half stores uh, because of a sort of blog post on Facewatch, the company that uh, provides the technology on its website, talking about it. So that's the only way that it sort of like come into wider public knowledge. It wasn't stated by co-op that they were going to be using this technology overall. Um, and that's led to sort of like concerns around how it's being used. So the watch list that uh, people are added to who may be suspected of uh, being uh, uh, a potential criminal or having been banned from a co-op uh, seven co-op store in the past those are all sort of created by um by uh, the stores and the sort of colleagues working in them themselves and people working in the sort of anti-theft departments of uh seven co-op um so that's very much like there's a question around sort of how people are getting added to this co-op says that uh it has been uh, added adding people who are banned or are known to have uh, to have stolen from its stores but there's not really a huge amount of detail around sort of like the the clarity of who's getting added to it um and there was a there was a there was a case around police use of facial recognition technology earlier this year which which uh, went to the supreme court in the uk and there were parts of that work that were deemed unlawful because of sort of a lack of transparency around police how police were creating watch lists and people that they had uh had identified for potentially being flagged up so there's some of those elements that may transfer across to this and on, on the sort of more legal side of things it, it gets quite complicated in issues around sort of like uh people's personal data and how it's processed under gdpr and and those types of issues that i'm not going to go into too much detail here but more generally sort of facial recognition has consistently proved problematic around accuracy and who is targeted in real world conditions we've seen lots of cases uh from the u.s of 
of uh, people being wrongfully arrested by police or or flagged up for uh, for sort of yeah potentially doing things wrong uh, when the system hasn't correctly identified them and there are lots of sort of questions around sort of like ifs is that is this necessary and proportionate within shops uh, to be scanning faces of potentially thousands of people going in and out uh, to try and identify a few people that could be uh, potential criminals or known as criminals. So what does co-op say about all this? Because presumably, you know, it's using the technology for a reason. It must think that there's there's enough benefit to get out of it to uh, to justify it. Yeah, so um, the reason uh, why co-op and why Facebook Watch exists really is to uh, try and reduce crime within stores around uh, and retailers. So uh, obviously shops um, lose huge amounts of money from things, items being stolen or 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 anything along those lines when when people are stealing uh supply chains have to put up costs once uh, more items go missing uh essentially the the impact of crime uh very much goes on to sort of consumers in in, in costs and also uh there is obviously a huge sort of like safety issue around if people who work in stop shops are being attacked when uh they are sort of uh when they're challenging potential shoplifters or or people like that so when we put this to co-op on facewatch uh co-op said that the person purpose that its use of uh, facial reckon was limited and targeted uh, to uh, look for repeat offenders were entering their stores uh, and they say that it gives their colleagues time to decide on any action that they need to take for instance uh, politely asking them to leave the premises or notifying police if a breach of a banning order has been has been made uh, they also say that no facial facial images are shared with police or any other organizations and only images of individuals known to have offended within their premises uh, have been included on the platform and uh, Generally, they say that uh, the, the the system they believe uh, follows GDPR rules. That can obviously be sort of interpreted through different channels. And there are, I'll come on to this in a minute, but there are people sort of looking at that as well. Uh, and that sort of, uh, yeah, the co-op and uh, Facewatch say that um, facial recognition is just one tool that is being used to try and reduce crime uh, across, uh, across stores and, and try to help tackle issues of uh, theft and violence, really. Just to reignite the party spirit, the only reason that we're having this discussion and that this story is being reported in a number of news outlets is because you came across a blog post. I mean, it, it wasn't that they were trying to keep this a secret, but they certainly weren't making a big song and dance about it and wanting people to have a public debate about it. So now that we are, what's the future of this technology and its use, particularly within retail? So, yeah, I think one thing that we can say with uh, with some certainty, really, is that the use of private facial recognitions, fa facial recognition networks are going to expand around the world as the technology is getting cheaper in terms of uh, hardware that can that can process images in this way. And also sort of like uh, cloud based AI technology is getting cheaper, so it becomes faster to do this sort of identification and processing. And over the last couple of years, we've seen it expand to. Uh, sort of shopping centers bars other venues that are sort of in this uh, sort of privately owned uh, places but where p people uh, uh, go for sort of like public events or, or for daily activities and that's only going to sort of 
continue to increase going forwards. Uh, we've seen more more retailers and places trying out this technology uh, and this type of technology generally in the future. And there are across the world, there are quite a few sort of like la- not a huge amount of regulation that directly applies to this use of technology so uh, specifically on this in the uk the uh, data protection regulator the information commissioner's office is uh, investigating the private use of facial recognition technology and and uh, part of that investigation uh, it confirmed is looking at sort of how facewatch works uh, facewatch for itself says that uh, all of its uh, all of its practices are, 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 are it believes are sort of uh, GDPR compliant and it doesn't have any sort of issues from its perspective there. But we'll obviously see going forward if the regulator says something different into its wider investigation. Um, and yeah, the sort of concerns really are that going forward, if you are having lots of these networks popping up, um, and one of the interesting things about Facewatch is it as a company, uh, while co-op can create its own list of suspects or people that it believes may commit crimes or anything, uh, Facewatch collects all of these into a national database. So basically it can be a network of facial recognition. So if you've got a co-op in one street and then a few doors along, there's another shop using this technology, it can also benefit from that same watch list of, um, of, uh, of, potential suspects or people that are suspected of doing crimes um so there's this sort of like bigger network effect of how this could spread and there is uh, there are questions around whether police will ever be able to get access to this data we saw um there was a case of private facial recognition technology being used in london around king's cross uh, sort of residential area and in that case police shared um seven images of uh, people it, they suspected of doing crimes with the makers of the technology um so there's sort of a bit of a precedent for this happening already and really it's sort of opening up the question of should there be legislation around this specifically a couple of states in the u.s have banned uh the uh private use of facial recognition by retailers retailers and hotels and airlines and lots of places so i think it's one of these areas there's going to be a lot of questions asked about do we think this is something that uh while it I'm sure it can be useful in, in detecting people that are suspects. Do we think it's proportionate that everybody gets their faces scanned? Is it worth that? Um, is it worth that sort of trade off in potential privacy for helping to improve safety and, and reduce theft and issues like that? So there's lots of discussions that need to be had around it, basically. It's a glimpse of the future, isn't it? And I suppose the ultimate question is what kind of future do we want to live in? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Would you be happy for an automated facial recognition system to scan your face every time you go and buy a pint of milk or pop to the pub or go and have a cup of coffee with a friend in a cafe. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else we've talked about in the podcast this week. We're going to finish the show this week and this year with the annual Wired Christmas pub quiz. It might not feel like it's Christmas quite yet, but Trust us, it will by the end of this. Okay, so 12 questions, each one based on a story that Wired covered in each month of the year. So some of these are stories that you guys wrote. This is going to be so embarrassing, James. I, based on previous feedback, I've tried to make the quiz slightly easier. I'll let you know if it's a (laughs) buzz in first or everyone gets an answer question as, as as we go. So... Prepare your brains, get in the party spirit. I think Vicky's already wearing a Christmas jumper, so we're a quarter of the way This one I consider my winter jumper. I've got a kind of range of (laughs) slightly more festive versions. It's it's 
yeah, it's not festive colours, but it's definitely a festive pattern. All right, so in January, Netflix premiered The Goop Lab, the sort of sciencey TV show inspired by Gwyneth Paltrow's wildly popular lifestyle brand. But which one of these is not a real Goop product? You all get a guess. Here are the products. Implantarama at-home coffee enema, psychic vampire repellent, collagen sparkling tea drink, or rose gold egg. Which one of those is not a real goop product? Implantarama at-home coffee enema, psychic vampire repellent, collagen sparkling tea drink, or rose gold egg. So I... I'm going to jump in here and say I think it's the coffee enema because I think if you're a goop subscriber or a reader, you would have someone else perform the enema. You wouldn't do an at-home enema. Fair enough. Uh, Matt Burgess. Uh, am I allowed to say the same? Yes. Okay, I, I think it's the same. Um, yeah, it doesn't... Yeah. We, yeah. Don't, we don't need a justification. It could just be a hunch. Vicky? No. <laughs> I'm going to say the collagen sparkling tea drink, which I actually think sounds like the most normal of the products on the list. I feel like the vampire thing, I think that definitely is a goop thing. It is. Yeah, so it, you're, you're wrong, but you're right. So the um, Implantorama, £135, I think, that exists. The Psychic Vampire Repellent, I think it's about 40 quid. that exists. The collagen sparkling tea drink, that exists. The rose gold egg doesn't exist, but the rose quartz egg does exist yours for 50 pounds you can't get a rose gold egg guys it's a rose quartz egg all yours for need those crystal healing powers exactly question two so it's 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 nil 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 question two in february covid19 started to spread around the world or might have started a bit earlier but here we are what does covid stand for I know, we've been saying it all year, and I didn't know this. You can all have a guess, seeing as no one seems to know. It's Is it an acronym? So it's like coronavirus something, virus something, something. There, I've, I've done two of the, the words. You guys can do the others. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those questions where we look really bad. I look really bad in particular. <laughs> Wired mm. Science Editor Matt Reynolds is going to say it stands for... I'm I'm just going to say that, a bit like Vicky said, the COV is coronavirus, and then the ID is infectious disease. Is that right? Matt Burgess. I, I don't think I, I don't think I can do any better than that. So I think Ma- to, Matt Reynolds uh, is pretty close there. We can we can judge on if we think Vicky should get a point or not. It's short, very simply, for coronavirus disease. I think Matt Reynolds definitely gets a point. Burgess and Reynolds, do you think Vicky gets a point as well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, come on, guys, it's Christmas. Spirits, aren't we? Exactly. So it's one point to Matt and Vicky and zero points to Burgess. Question number three. In March, Disney announced that every single episode of The Simpsons would be added to its Disney Plus streaming service in the UK. What I want to know is this. In 22 short films about Springfield, which is a seminal episode from season seven, Fastest Answer Wins, what is Principal Skinner cooking for Superintendent Chalmers? 
I've watched this. I've been watching all of the episodes. <laughs> on the, we're on like season 15 out of, out of season 30 now. Um, oh, to win. Come on, Matt he, goes, Burgess. he goes... He goes into their house. Um, he ends up buying um, burgers from yes. Krusty Burger, but that's not what he's cooking. Uh, it is. What he's cooking. They're called... I'm going to have to hurry you here. Hamburgers. <laughs> no, he calls them like principal burgers or something like that. No, I don't know. It's gone. If, if, if I said steam... Steamed hams? Yes. Yes. It's steamed hams. Congratulations, Matt Burgess. You look very jubilant. It is steamed hams. It's the only one I'm going to get right, and I barely got it right. Anyway. Matt Reynolds and I just look perplexed here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was meant to be easier. This, it is easier, you know, definitely. Let's, let's carry on with this episode. very easy end of year quiz. Um, you'll be sick of the side to me by the time we're done with this. So, on April 22nd, the Bank of Nook drastically cut interest rates to stop people from cheating Animal Crossing's in-game economy. But what kind of animal is Tom Nook, the game's benevolent overlord? I think I know this. Is he, is he a raccoon? Any or a squirrel? Any, <laughs> any I know what he looks raccoon? like. I don't know what animal that cartoon is supposed to be. <laughs> Maybe a possum. I'm going to go with Badger, but I've never played Animal Crossing, but Badgers are cute. Oh, yeah. Good. I'll go with Skunk, just because it's related to the animals that have sort of been said. Yeah, um, so I've, I think Vicky's closest and, and gets a point. It's a raccoon dog, um, which, which is not a raccoon or a dog. Um, it's its own thing. Uh, in, in Japanese, it's a tanuki, um, but raccoon dog. Um, so it's kind of a skunk. It's definitely not a badger. Um, but uh, yeah, there we go. So two points to Vicky, one point to Burgess, one point to Reynolds. We move on to May. Um, this is a bit of a cheat, but I just wanted to get it in here somewhere. By May, we were all getting very used to using Zoom for everything in our lives. Zoom birthdays, Zoom work meetings, Zoom pub quizzes, you name it. But what was Zoom originally called? Oh, I know I wrote this story, but I can't remember. <laughs> Um, Not to put the pressure on Vicky, but you, you did write a four thousand word feature about. I, <laughs> I know, but this was only one word out of those four thousand. <laughs> um, oh, I'll, I'll recognise it as soon as you say it. Begins, begins with, an with S. S. Stream meat. I don't know. I mean, that would make more sense than this. No one else is. I mean, would you like to make a noise that begins with S, Matt Burgess and Reynolds? I, you might get it. I would like to because it's onomatopoeic Zoom, I think. So I reckon it was called... Zoom. <laughs> no, <laughs> was it called? Chapau. That's on, on the right lines, uh, Matt Burgess, just make a slightly different noise. Chapi. I'll go with shush. Chapau. <laughs> Shapi, that's even closer. It's Sasby. Sasby? S-A-S-B-E-E. Sasby. Sass as in software as a service. B as in bees. I presume. I, yeah, I guess B as so. in bees? It's a terrible name. I could not find that the origin story of it yeah. anywhere other than someone admitting it was their idea, but they haven't explained why. Sasby. There we go. Uh, so it is still Vicky with two. Matt with one, Matt with one. In June, 
the Premier League returned, but with no crowds. Everyone predicted that the 100-day hiatus over lockdown would do strange things to the beautiful game. So, pre-lockdown, the 2019-20 Premier League season averaged 2.72 goals per game. How many goals did it average post-lockdown? Closest answer wins. So someone's definitely going to get a point. Good news. So I'm looking for goals per game. It was 2.72 pre-lockdown. How much was it when the Premier League returned? See, I seem to remember, I might be wrong here, that when football came back, there were some unusually high-scoring games, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell James's face that he's... <laughs> bearing in mind, I know absolutely nothing about football. My, my thought is, it's more. How much more? Because there's still a lot of boring games. I'm going to say 4.1 goals per game. Matt Burgess? That's a lot more. That is a lot. But it's fine, you've said it now. Yeah. Matt Burgess. That, that feels too high. Um, I'm going to go for 2.9, just a small increase. Uh, I can't really remember. It was so long ago. Vicky? I'm going to go for 2.8. So if it's below any of them, I win. And, and you have won. Good tactics. Yes. Uh, it's 2.72. It was exactly the same. So despite everyone predicting that the game was going to fundamentally change, it, it really didn't. Uh, 2.72. Uh, so not quite 4.1. Um, Vicky storms into an even greater lead. It's three plays one plays one. But there's still plenty of time to make up the numbers. Apart from, I now realise, I haven't written a question for July. So moving swiftly on to August. Don't say... We don't put in the hours. In August, US President Donald Trump signed an executive order in an attempt to ban TikTok. But who is the most followed person on TikTok? The, I think the only like celebrity TikToker I know the name of is um, Charlie D'Amelio. It is Charlie D'Amelio. So I'm going to say that. Yes, correct. That, that is the right answer. I would have so, said... Charlie D'Amelio as well, obviously. That was <laughs> Matt Burgess, what I was about for to Charlie say. D'Amelio as well. Points for everyone. Of course. <laughs> no, we'll give one to Vicky. Uh, very good, yes. The 16-year-old from the US who has 102.2 million followers, which is 30 million more than anyone else, but only about, I think, about 50 million more than her own sister, who is the eighth most followed person on TikTok. All right. There's still time to make it. No, I think Vicky's actually won, isn't she? Never mind. Carry on. In September, on September 22nd, in fact, Cabinet Secretary Michael Gove told everyone in England who could work from home to do so once again. How many days earlier did the government launch a media blitz to encourage Britain to get back to the office? I'm looking for a number of days. Closest answer wins. It was a very quick turnaround, but a a classic flip-flop. I'm going to say 13 days later. 13 days later. Uh, Vicky, you go next. I'm going to say it was even faster. I'm going to say five. Five. Matt Burgess. Yeah, that's... I think it's faster than 13. Um, I was hoping you would go higher, Vicky, so I could pull the same trick of being at the lowest position. But I'm going to go somewhere in the middle. I think it was seven. You were wrong to go somewhere in the middle. It was 25. 25 days. Yeah. So it was actually uh, in in late August. 
that the uh, the government uh, launched that media blitz, and uh, I think it was a Telegraph front page headline uh, that said, "Get back to the office or lose your job." Twenty five days. Um, so Matt Reynolds gets the point there. It's two to Matt Reynolds, one to Matt Burgess, four to Vicky Turk. As we enter November, I can't count. This can still be a draw. It's still on, so long as Matt Reynolds gets this right. In October, Netflix premiered A Life on Our Planet, its big-budget post-mortem on the natural world, hosted by Sir David Attenborough. It's estimated that Sir David has travelled more than 250,000 miles in his lifetime, or 10 times around the world. Super simple question. Everyone can have a shot. True or false? David Attenborough can't drive. Matt Burgess. Okay, um... I've seen it, and I've definitely seen him in cars before. I have a memory of David Attenborough in a car, um, a, a Jeep with without a roof. Um, I'm going to say false. I don't think he can drive. Wait, you, you, you think he can't drive? True, true, he can't drive. He can't drive, gotcha. Uh, Matt Reynolds. So I actually watched part of this last night, didn't get as far as David Attenborough in a Jeep, but did see David Attenborough in a plane. And David Attenborough on a boat, so that doesn't help me. But I'm going to say, I'm going to agree with Matt, I think he can't drive. Vicky? Well, I'm going to go false then, because I feel like Sir David Attenborough, I could see him like driving a safari vehicle maybe, although admittedly maybe you don't need a driver's license to do that. But yeah, I'm, I, I think he can drive. He can't. He bloody can't. He can't drive and has never passed his driving test. So it's still on. It's two to Matt Burgess, three to Matt Reynolds, and four to Vicky Turk. Our penultimate Everything question. to play for. Everything to play for. Matt Burgess, you can still win this, in fact. I really can't add, can I? Okay. In November, the Xbox Series X, Microsoft's next-gen console, launched worldwide. But why is the Xbox called xbox would anyone like to hazard a guess i to be honest i never thought it was a name with any great meaning behind it um i'm trying to think of like some fabricated origin story i can say that would sound cool but i'm drawing a blank i'm just gonna say because x marks the spot it's good, yeah. I mean, this is Microsoft, so th- there isn't some grand origin story to this name. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, that isn't the answer, but it is a very dull answer. Hmm. I'm gonna have to hurry. Okay. Go on up. I'm going to say if it's a dull answer, then it's because they. They made the A box and the B box and the C box, and then this was the 23rd <laughs> version of the box they made, so they called it the Xbox. X, Y, Z, is that right? I don't know. 24th version. Sure, you could have gone for Roman numerals and it would have been the 10th. Oh, that's better. Yeah, that what you just said. Yeah, mm. thanks for the answer, James. Still would have been wrong. Matt Burgess. Uh, I'm going to say because um, the PlayStation launched first and the X controller button was a symbol of gaming so they copied that that's not bad it, it, it's also wrong it's um, not good enough no so it stands for direct xbox um so if people had a pc 
way back when, they might have remembered having to install something called DirectX, which is Microsoft's Multimedia API. So it's a DirectX in a box. I did tell you it was very boring. It's also probably a bit too hard. All right. So it is all Great still party, to play. James. I know. I know. I know how to get people in the party spirit with Microsoft's Multimedia <laughs> API in a box. Okay, it, it's it's still all to play for, so long as you're not called Matt Burgess. So, Matt Reynolds, you have to get this one right. And the good news is, someone will get this right. Because its closest answer wins. In December, it emerged that 15 million mink buried in mass graves in Denmark following coronavirus fears may have contaminated groundwater. What I want to know... And this is such that this is a footnote in 2020 really to show how horrible this year has been. What I want to know is this. How many thousand tons of mink has the Danish Veterinary and Food Administration been charged with disposing of? So I'm looking for a a total weight dead mink in tons. Closest answer wins. Um, Matt Burgess, would you like to go first? Sorry. No. Yes. uh, I. I will, but after Matt Reynolds has asked his question. Please. (laughs) Are you essentially asking how much does 15 million mink corpses weigh? How much do they weigh? In in a way, yes. Although (laughs) um, an interesting fact that I will present after you have delivered your answers um, will show a discrepancy between the total number of mink that need to die and the total number of mink that have been killed. Um, So I'm looking for the weight of the well, a, a weight of mink how many tons of mink have been killed in denmark to date matt burgess you go first. i'm gonna go for it Please. um i've got nothing to play for anyway so i'll just put something out there i'm gonna go for six tons of mink six matt burgess has yeah. gone for six tons of mink um vicky turk i'm gonna come to you next I think it's way more. It's like thousands. Um, I, mean, I don't know how many, how much one mink weighs. Never mind like millions of mink. Um, Fifteen thousand. Fifteen thousand tons of dead mink. Buried That's maybe in way too Denmark. much. I don't. I don't know. really want to think I about this know. for too long, to be honest. Uh, Matt Reynolds, I've noticed you frantically scribbling down sums on a scrap of paper. <laughs> If you take one mink and multiply it by 15 million times, you get to the grand total of how many tons? Well, look, I'll talk you through my reasoning, because I think Matt's answer feels pretty good to me. My thought thought was, mink are pretty small. They're smaller than a rabbit. I reckon they weigh about half a kilo, between half a kilo and a kilo, which would make 15 million mink. I don't know, whatever. I can't really do the maths. I'm going to say... Eight. Just a little bit more than Matt. Eight tons no. of mink. Miles off. Oh, it's, it's really low. It's 31,000 tons of dead oh, mink. No. <laughs> oh, that's so far away. Yeah, and that, that only equates... So this is the problem. The 31,000 tons of dead mink only equates to roughly 11 million dead bodies. So officials in Denmark can't account for the whereabouts of several thousand tons of dead mink which is a a wonderful footnote to end 2020 on. We have no need for the thrilling tiebreak question that I've got written down here. Never mind. Vicky, you are triumphant. You can run off into 2021 as a champion of 2020. 
and you can hold that crown for an Thanks. entire year. <laughs> You're very welcome. The, the victory does feel a bit hollow, it, given that, you know, the last question was uh, knowing about all these poor dead mink. Although, in fairness, you, you were only half right in that you, you get half the total <laughs> amount. So there we go. Um, this is episode 498 of the Wired UK podcast. Um, we had hoped to do episode 500 as the first one back in the new year. Um, but so many of us are taking a bit of leave to have some extra time off to sit in our non-working chairs over the Christmas holidays that there simply aren't enough Wired editors to do an episode next week. So we're all off to enjoy some single household safe Christmas fun. We hope you have a wonderful Christmas break. We'll be back with episode 499 of the Wired UK podcast in the new year. After one of your emails, Matt Reynolds, you've got an email from Kevin and then we're out. Yeah, that's right. So Kevin wrote in um, about when we talked, we talked about um, lab grown chicken nuggets last week. Kevin writes, so for context, I've been an ethical vegan for 17 years. I should, I should know actually Kevin emails. Kevin's email is titled, Why I Won't Eat Lab-Grown Meat as a Vegan. So Kevin writes, I've been an ethical vegan for 17 years. I, what you'd refer to as strict, so no honey or anything to buy from animals, no medicine in, in gelatin. And um, he's been thinking about the question of lab-grown meat. And he was saying, I don't think it's a good argument to say that if you're vegetarian, you should eat lab-grown meat. Because his argument is... Um, that if it's derived from an animal cell initially, I wouldn't eat it. It's an interesting argument, Kevin. I, I have to say, as a, as a fellow vegan, I'm pretty excited about lab-grown meat. My, my, my thinking would be I'm a bit, bit more concerned rather than where the cell has come from. Uh, it's more, was any animal harmed in the process of extracting that? But I would, I would generally agree that really in the process... Um, that if there's an animal involved, it's probably not vegetarian. It's definitely not vegan, but it could be vegetarian. But it doesn't matter because in the case of this chicken nugget, if I remember correctly, it used fetal bovin serum anyway. So it did have dead animals involved in the creation of the product anyway. So it definitely wasn't vegetarian, definitely wasn't vegan, although this is something the industry is working on. Um, so yeah, thanks for writing in, Kevin. Thanks very much for that. So as I said, this is episode 498. We'd like to hear from everyone that's been listening to the podcast for just a few months or maybe many, many years. We've been around for a, a long, long, long time, longer than any of us have been at Wired. And it would be great to hear from lots of you so we can include your shout outs in the 500th episode, which will be our second episode of 2021. So do get in touch. Let us know who you are, where you're listening from and any messages that you want to include to your favourite Wired podcast people. Podcast at wired.co.uk and we'll do something a bit special for our 500th episode in the new year in a few weeks' time. Until then, as I said, stay safe over the holidays and we'll see you safe and well in 2021. Thanks for listening, as always. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.